Pounds of Bread and Fred, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things. And sometimes making things that are historical. Um, so we normally start the podcast by talking a little bit about what we have been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? Um, what have I been up to? I don't know, what have you? Uh, the, the DPNs that I was using for the Gansey broke again. Oh no! So I've had to buy some more. Um, oh, I know what I've been doing. I've been making dice jails. Dice jails? Do you, do you not know dice jails? No. When, when your dice have been rolling really badly, you put them in jail to teach them a lesson. I like my... that concept. <laughs> but the the group I play with in person, um, actually, when this goes out, we will have been playing for exactly a year. So I'm making, I'm using my new acrylic skills to make dice jails for everyone in in people's favorite colors. Oh wow! What does a dice jail look like? It just looks like a little a little cage, little prison cell. Oh, <laughs> like I am, I am anti prison, but it's it's funny. But not if it's dice; <laughs> they don't deserve it. Dice cannot be truly rehabilitated; they must be punished. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. I'll allow it. That's fun. <laughs> it's it's a lot of acrylic. Oh, that sounds interesting. That's a fairly new craft to you, right? It is. Yeah, I've you know I've done a couple of sets of dice, but this seemed really fun. <laughs> like I I made one just for me, and then I was like, oh, what can I do for to mark a year? I think feel like I need to make something. Oh, a D&D anniversary. Yeah. I think it's my longest running in-person game since uni. Wow. Which is a fair while ago at this point. <laughs> oh, excellent. That's really sweet. It's like ma- making your players an anniversary present. Yeah. <laughs> and it means I get to do lots of playing with colours. That is a good thing. I've been enjoying that recently. What have you been doing? Um, well, I haven't done any notable like cooking because it's too hot for that. Um, it sure is. <laughs> it's also too hot to knit. <laughs> um, I didn't even make my boyfriend a birthday cake because it was just too hot. <laughs> so I'm sorry. <laughs> but, so we, we had pancakes instead. That was about. That's a cake. That was as much time as I could bear to stand at the stove for. (laughs) So, yeah, it's also too hot to knit. Um, So, I've gone back to patchwork. Oh, nice. Which has been fun. I'm continuing on my sort of multicolored star quilt thing. Um, I'll put up a picture of that actually, Um, where it's got to when the podcast goes out. 
Uh, I'm. Oh, it's just so much fun. It's almost like doing stained glass but with fabric, if that makes sense. No, I get um, that. Yeah, I'm using the paper piecing method. Um, I've often heard it described as English paper piecing. I did talk about this briefly in our episode on quilts, um, mm. which is a good listen if you want to go back. And it's a technique where you cut um, pieces of thick paper in the shape that you're using. It's mainly tessellating shapes, so I'm using diamonds. Um, and then you um, sort of tack your fabric onto that, and then you use a whip stitch to sew them. Um, and it, yeah, it means you can do sort of fairly small pieces and tessellate them together, and it's a lot of fun. And so I've been enjoying playing with colour on that one, um, wondering which colour to use for the next part. And I've got a bunch of different fabrics, some of which are leftovers from various dressmaking stuff uh, that I've done. Some of them are just stuff I've had for a while. Some of them are old clothes and there's some fabric that people have given me that are leftovers from theirs. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, actually, you know that um, skirt that I made you with the musical notes on it ages ago mm. that ended up being really short? <laughs> yeah, slightly too short, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> I um, did not do the maths quite right, but it was heartfelt. Um, I found the rest of the fabric from that, so that's going to be in my quilt. That's pretty fun. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so that is me. So what is what is today's episode about? Today's episode is about the vintage hand knitting industry. Which is a fairly large topic, I guess. Yes. <laughs> but I I suppose I specifically mean like um the the real heyday of it in the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s. Um so early 20th century. Um, not that it wasn't popular later on in the 20th century. Like, I know there's this kind of idea that it went a bit downhill, <laughs> like, in the the last few decades. And um, there were some pretty, like, like, it wasn't very popular, and which is true. Like, I, I think... feel like you're referencing drama from a fandom I've never heard of. <laughs> Not really. I think it's just that most people seem to agree that it, knitting wasn't great <laughs> in the 80s. Which, having seen some of the patterns from the 80s, that's fair. Like, there are some absolute terrible <laughs> objects <laughs> that were created. Um, I really hope you've got pictures. <laughs> I will. I'll put up some specimens on the Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know. Like, it, I feel like it was still relatively popular. I think definitely it probably declined amongst like younger people. But there was also definitely, especially since in the sixties and seventies, like a resurgence of handcraft and and i think you know people started doing it then as well so I, I don't think the situation was probably as bad as it seems but um we're gonna look at the probably the the heyday of um 20th century hand knitting which is going to be exciting i know i i am excited <laughs> good um I hope our podcast audience is excited. To be fair, they probably will be. 
Um, well, yeah, they they listen to this. That that is true. <laughs> um. So yeah, this is the era when hand knitting just kind of exploded in popularity, and um, that was for a few different reasons, I think. Um, so I touched on knitting in when I talked about um the uh the guide to the Victorian needlework guide, um Therese de Gilmont. Um so if you're interested in sort of Victorian um knitting and needlework, give that a listen. Um so knitting is included in that, like it it was knitting has been happening um for a very long time. Um I've heard this. <laughs> but the variety kind of of options um expanded a lot. Um sort of from the nineteen twenties into the thirties. Like there was a lot of new materials available. Um and also there's the partly the thing with people had more free time um to make things. And then also there was a lot of magazines and publications that were putting out these patterns. So there was just a whole load of choice in terms of like pattern and yarn um, and, and lots of different things that were out there. And then as you go on like into the 40s and 50s, you get stuff like rayons and artificial fabrics and loads of different materials. Um, so, yeah. There's what is rayon? Rayon is um it's a viscose fiber. So that is like basically they get like a plant. So I think a lot of rayon can be made from wood. Um so that they get like a plant and then they just sort of mash it up and put it in chemicals until only the viscose cells are left and then they like extrude them into fibers um so rayon you can knit with wood yeah so that's kind of um I, <laughs> in addition to the list of a lot of things that i am not i'm not a chemist <laughs> <laughs> um so that's like <laughs> an extremely basic my understanding of how the process works but basically rayon is considered a semi-artificial fiber um because of the chemical part is that... yeah because it's not taken directly from the plant technically it comes from a plant but there's a lot of processes that have to be done to it in order to turn it into a fabric so a lot of things, this is kind of an issue with labelling today, actually. A lot of things um, like bamboo that um, people think are, you know, very environmentally friendly products, mm -hmm. um, that, that's a rayon. <laughs> bamboo is a rayon. Um, you know, I'd never considered how they make bamboo into yarn. <laughs> but that makes sense. Well, I'd... I'd kind of thought before I knew this, like, oh, it must be some kind of, you know, they strip the fibres from the plant. Because it seems logical, right? It's yeah. a tall like, plant. Plants have fibres. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it goes through the rayon process. It's, it's a kind of rayon. Um, yeah. <laughs> Wild. Which isn't to say, you know, like, it's bad or anything, but um, it's 
I think it's just good for to know what where the thing comes from um yeah. so that you know people can make the choices they want to make um but yeah so rayon was originally um developed as an artificial silk that makes sense because it is very soft and delicate yeah yeah like it is it does feel very silk like um although it doesn't have the properties that silk has um but yeah it was a lot more affordable than silk and easier to get so um yeah rayon was quite popular um although <laughs> it was a much more dangerous process to make it at the time <laughs> in the early 20th century so there's that um so yeah, all these these new sort of different kinds of yarns and people are really excited about it. Um, and the yarn companies would put out a lot of pattern leaflets as well. And a lot of these are still around. If you go in charity shops, you can find yeah, so, them. Yeah, I've definitely seen I've seen some of these. Yeah. Um, so there there was a lot of choice available. Um, and that is kind of reflected in the patterns that are on offer because there's just all sorts of different things. Um, and so you could get these patterns from magazines and there's just so many of them because they would be putting out, you know, a pattern every week in the magazine. Um, whereas you, yeah, you, you might not get sort of so often previously. Um, but there was there was a lot of demand for it, as evidenced by just the sheer amount of patterns and like knitting related things that that there are from that time. Um, there's a few things that are quite infamous, like the twin set, for example. Um, I'm, if, I'm not aware of the twin set. Uh, so if you're not familiar with what the twin set is, uh, the twin set is a knitted cardigan and with a matching knitted top that goes underneath. Okay. They were very popular in the 40s. Um, like... There's nothing objectively wrong with it. It just no, but I have to admit when I see these, it it does look very old fashioned. Um, I mean that makes sense if they were big in the forties. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but it's just you know, there's kind of possibly a reason that the twin set never came back. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was so popular that there were all sorts of things people were making with hand knitting. Um so for example, one of the the things is knitted underwear. Um now No. <laughs> no. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Um no. <laughs> I mean, I guess technically most of us wear knitted underwear um, because of jersey fabric, but... Oh, yeah, but not, like... No, like, hand-knitted. Yeah, yeah, that's a very fine game. <laughs> um, so this does have a bit of a, 
a bit of a history back, actually. Like, it wasn't common, but there are a few, like, existing patterns for knitted combinations from the Victorian era. So that that's, like, the kind of all-in-one undergarment. Um, the idea of a knitted fabric there... <laughs> just makes me viscerally uncomfortable yeah and these they were wool i mean there's a there's a pattern for um pants and vest in mesh stitch in the vna archive uh, which i will <laughs> i'll link to who are um... these for <laughs> they're very stylish and they use shetland two-ply wool Wool, wool. <laughs> um, and as far as I'm aware, you, you have Shetland, a picture of these. Uh, there is a picture of the original um, pattern. I think they look they look all right from what I can tell. The top is like quite a nice camisole, actually, and the the, the bottom is, is like bloomers. When you say mesh, I immediately think of like a string vest. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a finer mesh. It's hard to tell. There's a very small black on my picture, but mm. yeah. So I don't know. Um... <laughs> I'm still not pro. That's fair enough. But whatever our opinions, it does seem like it was a thing. Like, I, d I don't think these were uncommon. <laughs> I don't know how many people actually made them. But, you know, the it's existence... Like it could have been a novelty thing. That is true. But the existence of the pattern does suggest that there was enough demand for them to be <laughs> making patterns for this. Someone wanted woolly mesh knickers. And it's not... It's not framed as like an unusual or a particularly unusual thing. I don't know. Maybe it was just like a winter extra layer thing and people were wearing something else underneath. See, that I can see, especially with like a, a big Victorian skirt. Um, yeah, yeah. You can fit a lot of padding under that. <laughs> there is actually um, a very interesting video of um there's a really talented lady on youtube called engineering knits that's her channel um and she has made a set of these combinations uh to an original victorian pattern so i'll link that because it's it's quite it's quite interesting to see how they actually turn out um but yeah so this apparently was was a thing continuing into the 1940s um <laughs> so yeah who knows um <laughs> I can see doing it in the 40s just because, like, you can't get the, the good fabrics. Yeah, I guess maybe. Like, if there, there was, a sh like, a shortage of nylon, right, during yeah. the war, so... The war TM. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll leave that one with you. Um, No, take it back. <laughs> I want it. So among things you could make um, are knitted swimming costumes, quite infamously. And these were, I mean, people definitely wore them because I've seen pictures of celebrities from the era wearing them. 
And I also asked my nan about it because I <laughs> you wouldn't read have about to ask her about the pants. <laughs> I haven't yet asked her about the pants, but are you going to make me ask my nan about the knitted pants? I mean, you have to, right? <laughs> you got to report back. All right, I'll do it. I'll do it for historical purposes. Science. <laughs> no, for history. For social science. <laughs> but history just doesn't have quite the same ring to it, you know? That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, so these, these knitted swimsuits, people 100% absolutely wore them. My nan did say um, they were... I mean, I, th I think one reason that people wore them was because they fit you nice and there was not an, a lot of other fabrics at the time that would, be, you know, be stretchy around all your bits. Um, <laughs> in fact, according to the book that um, inspired me to talk about this, um, which is called This Golden Fleece by Esther Rutter, um, in 1919, there were two young American swimmers who were arrested for swimming in fitted woolen one-piece costumes. Why did this cause them to be arrested? Is it a... It was indecent! Because <laughs> you could see the shape of them? Yes! Wild! Uh, apparently. Um, but by the 1920s, um, what the, this is credited apparently with American women adopting short swimming costumes like in protest. Um, but apparently, um, by the 1920s, these knit this knitted swimwear was being mass produced already. Um, so, and and you could also get hand knitting patterns in case you wanted to make your own. Um, and people did, and and my nan did say that, um, yeah, that they were okay, but they they were great for swimming. Um, no problems with that. But it was once you got out of the water that there was a problem. <laughs> Because at mean, that point, yeah, at that point, it's wet wool. <laughs> yeah, which does tend to gravitate downwards. Like I'm just, because obviously you know I've got quite a lot of hair, and like when I get out of the water, I can feel it like pulling me down. Mm -hmm. I just I cannot imagine what it would feel like to have that sensation, but on your clothes. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting <laughs> but there is a whole host of um somewhat more decent items as well <laughs> um and i've had a look at some of them because um i got for my birthday last year a book called a stitch in time um by susan crawford and jane waller which is a collection of vintage knitting patterns that have been reworked for sort of modern knitters and the reason for that is that a lot of older knitting patterns assume a lot of knowledge from the reader i, I have um, noticed this <laughs> yeah in fact if you look at some of the victorian ones they they're just like knit rest of sock and things like that. Um yeah, so they can um as, like assume that the reader knows a lot of things. For example, like it would just say increase to 
this um, measurement instead of writing out the whole, um, you know, where you need to increase and what kind of increase, which is what a modern pattern would usually do. Well, yeah, um, because the, that makes a big difference yeah. to the, the actual shape of the thing. Um, although um, that seems to be more of a thing with English language patterns today, because um, from what I hear, um, some some other countries, like for example, Scandinavian knitting patterns, apparently um, tend to be a bit more um, sort of like assuming um, a bit more a bit more um, knowledge, or um, sort of that people will. Um, be able to to just kind of figure it out um which i suppose makes sense because i think they have um knitting in school there um mm. they have like handwork classes um in various parts so of you'd have so. people who've been doing it for most of their lives like you would have had back then yeah pretty much um yeah i guess i haven't made that connection before so that kind of makes sense um <laughs> but i certainly <laughs> Did not have that knowledge. I reckon I could do it now that I've been missing for a while. But definitely not, mm. <laughs> you know, to start with. And I still, if I was knitting something complicated, I would feel a lot better having the full instruction. Um, which, yeah, tends to be more, more the case in English language patterns, I think. Um, but yeah, if you if you're a knitter, and you are not from an English-speaking country, tell us what your knitting patterns are like. I would be interested to know. Definitely, yeah. And I know we do have listeners in in some of Scandinavia. Oh, cool. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so where, wait, where was I going before I... Yeah, so the patterns. Um... <laughs> Yeah, we tend to assume a lot more knowledge at the time. Um, so these ones have been updated, and I'm hoping to eventually make some. But there's some interesting things in here. And they've also reproduced the original pattern alongside the updated one, which is very interesting as a piece of domestic history. So, for example, there's a couple of patterns for bed jackets. Okay. Um, which is it's a little jacket that you wear in bed. And at first I was like, well, why would you need one of those? Um, and then my nan, who I was showing the book to, was like, well, we didn't have central heating. Duh. <laughs> uh, it's oh, it's yeah. like a dressing gown, but you keep it on. Yeah, but you don't, like, I guess they're just like short jackets. So you wear them sitting up in bed. Um. Yeah, so there's a 1930s pattern here for a, one of these bed jackets. Um, and it says, for the convalescent or for breakfast in bed, this bed wrap is ideal for comfort and it is quite attractive too. It makes a welcome gift for young and old. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be into a bed jacket. We should bring them back for like when people are in hospital. <laughs> Absolutely. I like just... I don't know, to be fancy. Are you saying you want a bed jacket? Yeah, I'm going to make one of these bed jackets. <laughs> <laughs> it can be difficult to figure out what kind of wool 
or yarn you need to use though when you're working from a vintage pattern because a lot of these young companies obviously they're trying to sell their yarn so they would put out the pattern and they would tell you uh, oh use this yarn from our company they wouldn't tell you like what's the weight of the yarn or like what kind of yeah so I had a vest pattern from the 40s Mm -hmm. and it didn't say what weight of yarn it just said use it use this amount of this particular product that we sell and I just kind of assumed it would be double knit because everything's double knit now Mm -hmm. um and then the vest ended up several sizes too big and it turns out they actually wanted me to use sock yarn (laughs) yeah um that that is kind of infuriating when that happens um but yeah a lot of the older ones are uh, do use finer yarns um which i guess would make the underwear like less uncomfortable than what you would be imagining because it would be more like a a sock but for slightly higher up But I'm still, yeah. I'm still not into the idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, not not loving it. Um, <laughs> bed jackets though, we can bring bed those jackets. Back. Yeah, yeah, we'll allow bed jackets. <laughs> they they do look pretty comfy. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is kind of the era of the couture knit as well. Um, like you would get these patterns in things like Vogue magazine as well and I mean you still can there still is a Vogue knitting magazine um, but it, like it was really quite glamorous at the time and I think these these finer gauge like finer yarns um, were part of that as well because you can get sort of a more a finer more detailed fabric um, so there are a lot of patterns for evening wear as well like evening jumpers yeah so there are patterns for evening jumpers as well which is not really a concept that we have now I think I mean, we don't really have the concept of evening wear. It's just formal and not formal. I guess, we yeah. Go dress for dinner. <laughs> I guess, unless I reckon you still dress up if you were going to like a dinner party or something. Oh yeah, but that's not because it's the evening. It's because you're doing something fancy. Yeah, I guess. I guess like you still probably wouldn't turn up like. It's very not like oh, it's up. seven p.m. I better go and put on my suit. um yeah uh just gonna turn some more pages um yeah we do have here um quite an interesting one oh and i actually just need to look something up because um this pattern is for what is titled ladies jumper and this is a 1930s pattern. And it's a quite nice looking jumper, actually. I might, I might make this one day. It's got like a, a sort of mesh lace panel in the front and then like and, and down the sleeves. And then the rest of it is like ribbing and it's got like a collar. Um, nice. um, Sounds like a lot. Yeah, it is also, I think it's four ply. Does it actually say? Yeah, no, it doesn't say. It doesn't. <laughs> Copley's speedy knit wool. 
Oh, and the the selling their knitting needles, of course. That you have oh, to use so. these. They all had different um sizing mechanisms for the needles. Of course they do. So they would tell you, oh, you you you've got to use R number five, but they won't tell you what that is in millimeters. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or I guess at the time inches. Well, because then you could just use the competitors' products. Oh, exactly. I mean, I'm sure people did. Like, people would just use what they had. I expect. Oh, but... I'm sure. I'm sure there were like the the WI or something just sitting around comparing needle sizes, <laughs> making up a little chart to share with your friends. Yeah, definitely. Um, but they didn't make it easy for you. <laughs> so this is a ladies' jumper. Um, this is from a magazine, and they have a little insert from the advisory department, which is Lady Georgiana Curzon. Um, <laughs> and they, yeah, they, they really did talk a certain way back then. Um, and she says, I'm going to try and put on a posh voice. I saw such a smart sports jumper last week in lovely thick wool, partly ribbed with front and back panels and sleeves in fancy stitch. Very new note was ribbed sleeved top. Do try this idea for jersey in speedy knit. Belted, please, with wide flat collar. Um, and now that they've made the pattern, that's just like it, only better. Your yoke effect is clever. Yokes are so new. I like your deep cuffs and deep welt moulds, the waist very snugly. I can see this in any of the country browns, reds, greens, or a smart mull mixture. Country brown? <laughs> So there we go. Celebrity endorsements. <laughs> um, but it's it... brown. <laughs> yeah, country. I brown. do like how much it did sound like an influencer, though. Yeah. Like, oh I... well, this just happened to be relevant to my life, and I thought I would share share it with you. Definitely well... not being paid. <laughs> you say that. Um, I did look up Lady Georgiana Curzon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like she was quite the influencer. Oh. <laughs> um, Lady Georgiana Mary Curzon Kidston, Lady Starkey. Um, that apparently she was a very, very famous um, socialite at the time. She was included in something called the Book of Beauty um, and, and did some modelling. So... Yeah. <laughs> yeah she was an influencer um and she was also married to a man with the fantastic name of lieutenant commander home ronald archibald kidston wow who was a royal navy officer farmer and racing driver so she was an influencer and a wag yeah, like these guys sound like a sort of celebrity power couple of the time. I'm kind of into it and I want a sitcom about them immediately. <laughs> also, this man's first name was Home. I, I don't understand. I mean, names are fake. Um, that's especially posh names. <laughs> so. Yeah, I I think all in all, quite a uh, quite a worthwhile person to have or advertising your patterns. There's one here for a knitted fez. 
sure. It's a fun Yeah. Well, the title of this page is A Fez is So Piquant. Perhaps you like to look sophisticated. Then the Fez is for you. (laughs) It's piquant. Spicy hat. (laughs) To be fair, these glamorous 30s models, like, she does make it look quite nice, but I don't think I would look the same in one. You you don't think it would look spicy on you? (laughs) No, I don't. I don't think it would look quite as spicy. Um, (laughs) Moving into the 40s. Um... We have got, well, we've got the twin set, which is certainly iconic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and That's a polite way of putting it. Yeah. And we've got these new yarns as well. Um, I feel like the names that they gave to things. There's this evening jumper, which is knitted in two-ply Excelsior wool. Excelsior. Excelsior. Um, there were also, um, you know, different different yarns available at the time. Like they would often use a three ply, which is not that common today. I don't think um, I've come across a three ply. Yeah, I think you can get them, but it's it's one of those sort of in between weights. I think it's between two and four. Yeah. Well. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of berets. See, I, I like berets. I think I think you can get away with a lot with a beret. Yeah, they are nice. Like, especially the jaunty angle ones, I think. Mm. And then this one is also quite infamous, I think, um, going into the 1950s. Um, there's the Angora cardigan. Oh, oh yes, I've I have seen these. <laughs> you don't sound enthusiastic. It's just, it's another one that just doesn't look that nice to actually wear. I don't know. I've never actually felt. Or worn angora, so I don't know whether or not it's particularly itchy or what. It it doesn't look like it would be itchy. It looks like it would tickle. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't look know. The wrists. I feel like it would just be constantly tickling my wrists. <laughs> um. Well, yeah. It was it was famously extremely popular in the fifties. Um. So much so that there was like a whole genre of fashion called the sweater girl. Just just women in jumpers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but <laughs> specifically these sort of fuzzy angora sweaters. Um so uh, yeah, like there's there's always trends in knitting, I suppose. Um, here we go. Angora makes pretty separates. Uh, lace stitch cardigan materials. 
13 balls of patterns fuzzy wuzzy. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if Angora was expensive then as it is now, because it's pretty expensive now. Um, so yeah, that's that is a pretty sort of brief look at the <laughs> the heyday of the hand knitting industry. Um and I think one of the reasons that it's sort of declined a little after um sort of during the nineteen fifties is because of the increase of mass production, although like knitting was already being mass produced. Um but there there was sort of a big increase at that time and plus um acrylic yarns came in which were much, much cheaper and easier to wash. Um mm. and obviously people were really excited about these new materials. Um so people started wearing that. Um and yeah, then suddenly hand knitting and particularly using wool um wasn't perceived as quite as as useful as it used to be um although um like i said there was this sort of res resurgence of handicrafts in the 60s and 70s kind of as a reaction to that i think um and now it is back with a bang and people are really excited about these old patterns again and, and wanting to make them. Um, and I think it is a really interesting thing to do because they are, they're made in quite a different way. And it's, it's an interesting little piece of domestic history, actually, like what they can tell you about the mood of the time, because most of these older vintage patterns are made in pieces and then seamed together. Whereas the usual method of knitting a jumper or a sweater now is doing it in the round um, on circular needles. Mm -hmm. um, so that you don't have to do any seaming if possible. Um, so they were sort of much more tailored back in the day. Um, and I mean, there's advantages and, and disadvantages to both methods. Um, but I think the availability of circular needles as well has made a big difference to knitting. Because some of these, like I've seen pictures of people knitting on these really long straight needles. And it's just, don't, I don't think you can really take that on a train. I mean, you can. Technically, yes. You can do a lot of things. <laughs> um... And then you also had a lot of things during this time, like the popularity of Fair Isle, um, which became super popular in the 30s when a, a member of the royal family started wearing them, these, these like Fair Isle vests. Um, and, and then it became a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, yeah, that I think has always been fairly sort of constant. Um, yeah, so just there's there's a lot of, a lot of things encompassed within that. Um, yeah, that was that was a very quick look at hand knitting through the twentieth century. 
and I hope you enjoyed it. I very much did. <laughs> so please let us know and, and tweet us the pictures if any of you are making anything from a vintage pattern. Because that would be great to see. I'm actually tempted to make some of the like absolutely eye-searing 80s numbers. In fact, there was a fame a fairly well-known TV presenter, I think. Giles Brandreth, who was known. Oh, oh yes, I've seen his jumpers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who was known for these fun knitted jumpers I think he has a book of them I'm tempted mm -hmm. <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> I kind of I kind of love this one but yeah I mean that's a jumper. It's it's got it's got a train on it. Um, I think it has a fairly realistic image of a steam train. <laughs> it does. I think he kind of got known for wearing these, and then people just started sending them to him that they'd made. Um, and then he just wore them all on TV. Uh, so if you're interested in that, do a Google image search. There is a lot to be seen. I mean, it's, it's probably more fun to be known as the person that wears fun jumpers than as a former Tory minister. Yeah, probably. Um, so there's just, there's one of him here with lots of 80s hair holding a cockatoo in a jumper that says, I'm a luxury if you can afford. Hey. So yeah, on that note, let's take it to Local Larder. Yeah, the Local Larder, I thought I would look at Crab Rangoon, cause, just because it came up on a show I was watching, and I didn't know what it was. I, I realised I'd heard the name a lot, but never actually found out what it was. I don't know what that is either, so I'm interested to find out. Um, so it's basically a crispy wonton filled with crab, cream cheese, onion and garlic. Sounds pretty good. Um, so the, the name, it's named after, um, Yangon in Myanmar, which was known as Rangoon under under British occupation because there's always colonialism hiding around the corner pop up somewhere if, if you're playing the bread and thread drinking game go ahead and finish your drink now <laughs> it does sound delicious though it does um, often served with things like plum sauce, duck sauce or Chinese mustard um, but it's a part of a larger trend, which we will definitely go into at some point, 
of um, tiki culture. Do you mean, like, as in what, I guess, what we would associate the word tiki with, like, now? Um, I mean the post-war art, well, partly art, um, but at this point mostly food aesthetic movement um, inspired by um, <laughs> Pacific art um okay which just makes it more confusing frankly with it being named after somewhere in Myanmar <laughs> <laughs> wait so it's not a dish from Myanmar it is a dish from 1950s San Francisco <laughs> okay <laughs> um so tiki culture generally, we will definitely do an episode on it, but the general gist is uh, American soldiers who had been serving in the South Pacific went back to the US and basically appropriated um, indigenous Pacific cultures because mm -hmm. they looked fun. Um led to things like uh, the zombie cocktail and the uh, Mai Tai, which were apparently also invented in this same quote-unquote Polynesian-style restaurant called Trader Vic's. Okay. A lot of foods seem to come out of San Francisco. Well, it's one of these very diverse but at the same time with a lot of very wealthy people mm -hmm. areas, which is quite rare in, honestly, most countries, especially in the West. You kind of get very diverse and very poor because people who aren't whatever group is, is raised up as the superior majority are generally treated badly. Mm -hmm. Um... Or you get a lot of rich people, but places like San Francisco, you get both kind of interacting a lot more than you do in some places. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was claimed by um, a chef called Joe Young working at Trader Vic's restaurant to be based on an authentic Burmese recipe, Burma being the old name for Myanmar. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it shows up in a Hawaiian-themed party menu in 1952 as a Rangoon crab. But as I said, the main ingredient is cream cheese which is very big in America at this point, not really a Pacific or Southeast Asian ingredient. Yeah, not a region not known for its cheese, as far as I know. Absolutely not. It's a, a region with 
much higher lactose intolerance than yeah. <laughs> than places like say the US <laughs> which has a lot of white people and white we are the people who mostly have the lactose tolerance um but yeah so it's essentially this like savory cheesecake in pastry that was created to to profit off GIs being nostalgic for their off for their time off when they were serving in the South Pacific. There is there is a lot within that food and not just cream cheese. No, there's also crab. <laughs> and there is a National Crab Rangoon Day what? in in the US. When uh, is it? It's the day before Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe you can make some like heart shaped crab puffs. <laughs> Well, it's going to be tricky to order the crab on Valentine's Day. They won't have any left. Yeah, so, like, there are a lot of Asian-style foods which are, like, which are immigrant cuisine. Mm-hmm. And there's a really interesting history to a lot of these things. Um, crab Rangoon is not immigrant cuisine. <laughs> It is, let's vaguely try, but not really try to copy Polynesian food and name it after a place in Myanmar. That's quite random. But I love a made-up food. I mean, food food with a story is always fun. <laughs> the story is just a little bit less of a, a fun tale in this one. Yeah, that's... um. Quite a ride. Uh, but apparently it's quite popular in American Chinese restaurants nowadays, mm. which is interesting. Okay. So it's it's kind of been adopted. It stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean like I would try it. Yeah. So yes. when are we going on a <laughs> US food road trip? When we hit a hundred patrons. <laughs> intent <laughs> um, so yeah that is my my brief history's last summary of Crab Rangoon I liked it most of it <laughs> um, so yeah we do have a Patreon we do ah. nice segue um, it is Bread and Thread where you can get access to a Discord server where we like to talk food we're making, crafts we're doing, and just general history, yelling at each other about history. <laughs> I'm thinking of doing a paper piecing tutorial for the Patreon. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, we also have a Twitter at Bread and Thread where you can find things we talk about on the show, pictures and things, we'll put them up there. Um, I guess that's kind of our show notes type place. 
uh, teasers for upcoming episodes, things that we find interesting, and sometimes we post about what we're doing craft wise. Yeah, we have a we have a work in progress Wednesday. Um, yeah, we fun. also do those things on Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a YouTube channel and um, that has our episodes in YouTube video format because some people prefer that. Um, and we have you can email us as well. In addition to all and those things, <laughs> we, got, we got an email recently. Oh, we did. What was it about? Um, it was a suggestion and a question about my local market. Thank you. Um, I want to say Frederick. Not good at pronouncing German names. Tell me if I pronounced it wrong. Um, for for that email. I'm just having a look. Because I just realised that I have it on my my Google thing. Oh, neat! Oh, that's a good email. Thanks, Frederica. <laughs> so that is uh, breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Everything else is just bread and thread. We are strongly branded. <laughs> so... Thank you for listening and we will see you next time.